Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Yaron Weitzman. He's the author of Tanking to the Top, The Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports. When a group of private equity bigwigs purchased the Philadelphia 76ers in 2011, the team was both bad and boring. Attendance was down, so were ratings. The Sixers had an aging coach, an antiquated front office, and a group of players that could be best described as mediocre. Enter Sam Hinkie, a man with a plan, straight out of the P.E. playbook, one that violated professional sports golden rule. You play to win the game. In Hinky's view, the best way to reach first was to embrace becoming the worst. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Yaron Weitzman. Yaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a thrill to have you on. Uh, I, I you, You've written a book. Most Your most recent book was Tanking to the Top, uh, and it's about the Sixers process Capital P. What's that? Capital P. Capital Capital P P. process. The process, right? It's not a process. It's the process. But the process by which they planned to kind of uh, win by losing, right? That that it 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 tells the story of a GM who is a is a pretty interesting guy. He doesn't really have a sports background per se. Uh, He but he's just this sort of he's got a finance background. He's a sports fan. He gets hired to go to the Sixers, and he's got this ambiguous. Ambigu- he's got this ambiguous prospect, right? Because the Sixers are what you call basketball purgatory, right? They just they are you know gone from their glory days, and this guy Sam Hinkle comes in, and he realizes that the way to do this is to is to tank the team for a few years, get a bunch of draft picks that are that are better, get good first, second, third, fourth, fifth. You're trying to get like early top round draft picks. And you'll get a whole new team, and eventually, with that team, right, that will turn around the fortunes of the team. That is, that's pretty much the kind of summary of the process. Yeah, that's basically the idea. I mean, so Hinky did have. I'm going to correct a little bit. He did have a sports. He wasn't. He came from finance. He actually had been working in basketball for about six, seven years before that. Before the Sixers hired him, but, uh, but no, he was never. He was, like, def- he was never like a coach or anything, though. He didn't have no, like no, a no. Coach, he, but, yeah. The highest level he played was high school, right? He he might have been able to walk onto a college team had he wanted to, but he did not. He went to business school at Oklahoma. He got an MBA from Stanford, um, and kind of backdoored his way into sports organizations. So for sure, that was the idea. The idea was that you know MBA reverse engineer title, basically the idea that if I look at NBA history, most championship teams have a superstar. Most superstars you get early in the draft. Therefore, the best way to win the championship is to get a superstar and have as many draft picks, high draft picks as possible. Um, for those who don't know, right, the way it works in all sports is that the worse you are, the better your draft pick, which I always find funny that like a you know, system comprised of a bunch of free market absolutists, i.e. sports owners, all of a sudden become, no, 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 let's help each other out here. You know, worst team becomes uh, gets better picks because we all need our help. Um, so his idea was we're going to do that. We're going to get a bunch of picks. I'm not going to hit on every pick because I think it's a bit of a crapshoot. It's not a science. 
Um, so therefore, I'm going to treat it like blackjack, that we want a bunch of swings at the plate is what he would call it, right? More swings at the plate. We go two for five. We're great because we have two superstars. and We're good to go. Yeah, and it's interesting. You point out in the book that I found interesting is that like basketball, right? He figured out was the sport that is most superstar dependent, right? Because you've only yeah. got five people on the court. Everybody has to play offense and defense. So it's so you're it's harder to build like a franchise without superstars. Whereas in other sports, you, you might be able to do that, right? Other sports, you got a bigger roster and and you can have more sure. middling talent uh, combined with good talent. But but in basketball, it's going to kind of be dependent on the superstars. Yeah, there's no. I mean, we've seen that literally. Like you look at every championship team ever, right? They almost literally almost every single one has like a top five player at that time, right? Hall of Fame players. There are obviously exceptions always, but not, even so, like the exceptions, like you point out Dirk Nowitzki's Dallas Mavericks, and that's a Hall of Fame player, right? Um, so you need those. There's really no equivalent in sports. It's almost like you know a quarterback matters, but he's off the field half the time. So it's almost like if you had like a starting pitcher who could pitch every game. Right, that's almost a bit the closest equivalent, right? The idea of the impact that a single guy can have on the sport. Yeah, this it's interesting too because, um, uh, Hinky he starts off right in football, right? That's his first kind of professional foray into sports, and he goes and he works with a team, and he's he kind of circumvents the football draft too, right? He's thinking, look. This 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 Jimmy Johnson Dallas Cowboys system where they basically decided we'll have these kind of you know one th- you know the point systems where the top draft pick is worth three thousand all the way down to one hundred was based on like weird Pro Bowl statistics Pro Bowl performance and he's like this is just isn't tell us anything and his first foray into this right he kind of deconstructs the NFL draft and comes up with a new system that's kind of where he's got kind of an edge because he's thinking in a way that that no one else is thinking. Yeah, it's the money, but it's market efficiency, right? People, that's what Moneyball was, right? People always often equate Moneyball with on base percentage, and it wasn't that, right? The idea was no, I'm going to find the thing that's valuable that no one else is attributing value to. I'm going to find the market inefficiency, and then by realizing that there's value there, I'll be able to get something good for cheaper, right? So that was that was always the idea. So the idea was to figure out this draft chart okay now not only now we can see how everyone else is valuing things and we can say oh they're going to think this pick is worth this we know how why they think that we see that's actually subjective let's take advantage so that was the whole idea right and again same thing the nba right the market inefficiency is that you're allowed to tank right (laughs) like the league lets you lose games essentially on purpose not quite um you know the team wasn't like coming out there and throwing the ball out of bounds but i i wish i used this in the book somebody else compared it and i'm really ashamed that i did not major league the movie major league yeah the first one like that's what this was they did not have the uh, naked poster of uh the, of owner. the owner right <laughs> but but that's basically you know uh management putting a team out there that was built to lose um and that was the market efficiency that we're going to take advantage and we're going to draft over and over and over. We're going to do something that no one else is willing to do. We're going to prepare for five, six years down the line. So therefore, we can trade this player who's good now. We're going to get a bounty for him for something that will be valuable to us four or five years later that nobody else cares about. So that was the whole idea. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. And what what it seems that that Josh, it's just Josh Harris, the, the owner of the team, yeah. He and Hickey seem to have a, a, a kind of magical connection here because, you know, Harris had made all his money. He like he did private equity stuff, right, and other things. And he had kind of a similar philosophy, right? You you find tanking companies, 
that really could be good companies and th- do things like buy their de- lever, take a, acquire their debt or something. So yeah, if yeah. it folds, you you're the first creditor to get paid back. And you buy the debt cheap or turn them around or cut them up and resell them. So he kind of has this vision for 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 this kind of tanking tanking companies, tanking performance, and turning them around as well. And so these guys seem to have like a kind of economic philosophy and an athletic philosophy that that seem to gel. Spoke the same language is the uh, is the uh, way it was phrased to me often. And like, yeah, I, I am. <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, you are a fast reader. I am a. I am far from a private equity um, expert. But when looking that up and like you know looking into talking to people, finding out okay, what's the what's the deal with these guys? Josh Harris and his partners as owners. What's their deal with um, how they made their money? Their backgrounds and people start explaining to me private equity and you know there's different versions and different ways to do it but at the at its foundation it's the idea of buying a troubled asset often stripping it down for parts and then you know either reselling it later or building up the value again right does that sound familiar it was literally like i remember hearing that for the first time and being like oh my god that's yeah that is essentially what we're talking about here so it should not it should not be a surprise to people and i do think this is misconstrued so and the, the analogy i always give is that sam hinky if he's the architect of the quote-unquote process you know you don't hire an architect to carry out. If I'm if I'm renovating my house, the architect is carrying out my vision, right? It's not like the architect brings me something that is completely foreign to me that I didn't want to do in the first place. Yeah, I'm wondering what this does. You know, I mean, if, if you're if you're one of the players that's drafted, I mean, how much does this shape? You know, you talk a lot about different players in in the book, and I'm just wondering psychologically if you know. You're kind of the bad news bears. You're the kind of team built to lose, like so that they can replace you with the team that's about to win. I mean, that's got to be a psych. It got to do a psychological job on the people that are in phase one. It makes it hard for sure. For sure, there's tons of ways to do it. One, forget even just like it getting meta on it. Just the idea is you're gonna be losing a lot, right? Losing a lot is just your team stinks. You're gonna be losing a ton. That that's hard. NBA seasons are long. It's hard to with that it's hard to keep working hard it's hard to staying positive um the head coach brett brown who was not he had some issues but one of his one of his strengths was kind of being relentlessly optimistic and upbeat and helping devise ways like their practices were full-on competitive like nba teams barely practice and if they do they're not exactly you know if you walked into an nba practice you'd be shocked to see how light it was um this was not the case with those Sixers teams they were going hard they were coming up with other ways to be competitive other ways to give the guys, players wins, right? They would give them individual dra- grades on like things like hustle points and loose balls and outlet passes. And, you know, you keep, it just helps keep a competitive spirit alive and the idea of notching some victories, which was important. But no, for sure, it, it definitely drains you knowing you're being churned in and out, um, knowing that you're losing every game. I also think the bigger issue is knowing that. So these guys, they're not going to play less hard because for them, this is their career. And a lot of these guys are borderline NBA players. They're going to put it all on the line. This is their shot. What it's going to do, though, is you're creating a uh, – not exactly creating an uh, all-for-one, one-for-all atmosphere there if if the idea is that everyone knows they can be in and out any day. We're not winning many games. I'm barely an NBA player. Okay, let me go get mine because that's what matters. I got to get my 20 points. It doesn't matter if we win because they don't care about me. I need to – Take care of myself. Yeah, that, I mean, I can't. That's got to be kind of devastating for for morale and 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 that sort of thing. I mean, no, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, the, the Sixers had this before this, right? They had this storied background, right? You had people like uh, Julius Irving, Charles Barkley, and all these great 
Sixers stars. And this was a time like where the Sixers were in the wilderness, right? So, I mean, on, on one hand, morale was already bad, right? So, I mean, how much, how much worse could it get, right? Is that some of the calculation? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea, right? NBA, again, I called the purgatory, right? In NBA, either you want to be competing for a championship or at least bad enough where you can get some high draft picks and have some hope. Being in that middle ground there is, uh, you know, this is the very scientific word I can use, bleh. It was just bleh, right? The whole thing about the team, the atmosphere, the feelings around it. It's just meh, bleh, and and yeah, 100%. That's the idea. Like, okay, so we're, we're stuck here. How do we get to the next part? Let's tear it all down and go from there. Now, it's interesting. You did not, the, the Sixers would not talk with you, right? I mean, you talk about <laughs> this in the book. They, they basically, Hinky talk, you talked with Hinky a little bit. We exchanged some texts. Then he kind of cut you off, right? Uh, the, the, the front office cut you off. I mean, you still had your Bleacher Report pass because you're writing about the NBA. And so you can still kind of hang out with, 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 as a journalist. But you were pretty frozen out. They were pretty negative on the book why do you think that was that they didn't want you to cover because i mean uh, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. just because it was bad again bad pr or to be honest, short answer i have no bleeping idea like i can give theories and i get why yeah like no one i had no sit down officially sanctioned sit down interviews with any of the major players here connected to the sixers right none of them um in terms of and people currently employed by them meaning players coaches etc um so that for sure that did not happen um yeah, why why they did not? I, I mean, I I think it's easier to say no at first, right? And like, it's not they're not so proud of the history of tanking. Though it's funny, I, I poke at them because they don't like talking about the process. Yet they trademark trust the process recently too. So I guess you can be annoyed about something while also trying to make money off of it. So God bless. But yeah, I mean, why initially I get why you don't at first. They didn't know me so well. Why, as you could kind of see, I'm a year into this project, and as I said to them many times. Book's happening, you know, whether you guys want to or not, um, and why you never bring me in. I honestly, I, I do have, a, I don't have a good. Yeah, answer. because I would think, I would think, okay, hey, they believed in the process. I mean, this is the thing; it's the process. Definite article, capital P, right? It's not a process; it's the process. They believe in it, and they're ostensibly, it seems like, proud of it, right? And so, yeah. why? It's like, hinky, or, so they replaced Hinky, right? So it's these these guys are not Hinky. The ownership's still there. Um, hinky had a, a key part. Hinky and the team CEO. Did not get along great. Um, the CEO is still there. Hinky's not. So I think that plays a major role in terms of how proudly we should pound our chest that we trusted the process. Um, but it's, you can't ignore your past, right? You can't pretend it didn't happen. And especially when your star player is nicknaming himself the process and tweeting trust the process every two months, right? So it just, it just seemed, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. I'm with you. I really, I'm at a loss for it. Yeah, because it seems like it's it seems like it's a standout thing, right? I mean, if part of what you want to be as a team or any success in life is the standout, and if you if you stood out by, by something that you engineered and you kind of came up with, I guess it maybe it is the hinky thing, right? We just it's it's maybe it just comes down to interpersonal stuff. That's I mean I think so, but again, like yeah, you're gonna be over it, and but also I mean not to go too meta on the PR stuff. I'm then confused why you don't bring me in and say, okay, here's why he was ruining it. Here's how we saved it, right? And now it's like that never even happened on background, right? Why those conversations never happen, I, again, I have no good answer. Yeah, because you're throwing out a chance to shape the narrative, right? Yeah, like exactly. th this book could be this this crown jewel. And and you even, I mean, you tell stories like there were players that were, wouldn't even talk. I mean, nobody, like, I guess it was a top-down kind of order. No one talks to, to this guy about the book, right? Right, exactly. Yep. Um for sure, for sure, yeah, exactly. Shape the narrative, and I, I am confused about the 
at the strategy or the ignoring of such an opportunity or I don't know, maybe they didn't think the book would come out. I have no idea. When you would walk into the stadium or stuff, and did they like are people talking and then they all stop when they see you or what? what <laughs> no, it's not like that. It's not like that. What it's you just get feelings here every now and just how people treat you. Like it wasn't. This is why I, I sometimes I always feel a little bad. Like it's not they let me come. I mean, I'm saying let me come. There could have been issues. Not there for the most part. The PR staff was mostly polite and professional. There were a couple issues here and there. It wasn't like that. But you find out after somebody said, "Oh, you know, he's writing a book. Don't say things to him." Or reaching out to people after. You know, that's kind of how it goes. Um, and then you do you do start to find out, you know, my job as a do it like it's very different than how I act in you know my personal life, but just to go up to people and shake their hand and start you know picking their brain and kind of being a little annoying, you know, you know, when you talk to somebody and you can tell they want to end the conversation and you can decide whether you're okay with that or not. Um, as a reporter, your job is to kind of let them not let them off the hook like that, kind of keep the conversation going, um, and that was taking a lot more energy, right, <laughs> as the book was happening, just in terms of executives and things like that. So I, when we're thinking about the Sixers now, right, where are we? It's almost like you think about, you could think of this process as like phase one, right? We're tanking, right? Phase two, we're building. Like it's starting to work. And then I guess the final phase would be we're winning. Now they haven't won a championship yet, but they've been in the playoffs more. They're getting more competitive. I mean, are we kind of in phase two or phase three? I mean, where do you see the Sixers now? Phase three. Hey, man, I wrote the book. It's done. Phases are over. No, Phases I, are yeah. over. It's over. <laughs> it's over. No. Listen, I'll be like, the book, like, I'll say it's premature. I think it's a good book. Like, someone's going to do this book. Someone's going to do this story again in 10 years, right? And there'll be more on it, and we'll have a more complete arc, for sure. Um, not to say it's not like I think there's plenty in there that if you're interested in reading, I truly do think you'll find it enjoyable. But I, I say we're in phase three right now, like three or three, basically, where the idea is we're in the now we are trying to win a championship phase. How do we do that? Um, right. One is the rebuild. Two is okay. Now we're going to be a competing team. See how to get to the next level. Three is we are trying to shape a championship roster that is really hard to do. That makes you know that takes big decisions. One of the best ways someone once described it to me is that tanking is easy, tearing things down is easy. That's fine. Where things get hard is when you have to start actually making bets on players. Right. This guy is worth paying. This guy is not. This guy we want to trade. This guy we want to acquire. That's where it's a different type of skill, and that's where the Sixers are right now. I mean, so what, what, you know, when players realize they're, they're being kind of portrayed, like they're, they're, they're being, they're on the team because they're not looking to be great right now. Right. I mean, is that like, does the play, the players kind of, I mean, how, how much does the process, right? That all the players have shaped like their own self-conception. I think. I get what you're saying. I think it's important to think of these guys that these are the 1% of the 1%, right? And they all think they're NBA level for the most part. They all think they're really good. And they just want that. They just all believe that for the most part of NBA players, and you have to be to be at that level, even if you're a borderline NBA player, you have to be supremely supremely confident to have made that become that good. Um, I think most of them are of the belief that if I get my opportunity, that's then that's will be my chance to show what I can actually do. And that's how they're thinking. But I don't think they look at it as, as oh this guy thinks this guy thinks I stink this guy has me on a team because he thinks I stink therefore oh man that's gonna shake my confidence I think it's more oh nice I get to put up twenty shots tonight that's really good for me because I can pr- finally prove my worth. No, in, in in the whole kind of Moneyball story, right? That created a culture war in baseball. Right? People thought the guys in Moneyball were ruining the game, right? That this is you know you're you're taking away the beauty of 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 
the excitements, the grand slams, the, the thing you know, for a kind of more incremental market value approach. Something similar happens here in the NBA, right? I mean, the, the Sixers kind of start a culture war in basketball. Yeah, for sure. Um, the idea of, you know, the argument of you play to win the game, right? That corny thing, but just, you know, you're supposed to play to win the game. Like how much it, I find it fascinating and I found this fascinating while going through this, the idea of what do you want? What do fans want from their team, right? So there's the fan who just had a long day of work and wants to come home and put on a game every night because they want to space out and watch a team compete and that's all. Or the fans who um, want a championship or bust and like to think of it as, and I, this is more recent, right? It's kind of in the shadow of in the wake of Moneyball, where a lot of fans view things from a GM perspective. Everyone who grows up thinking, I'm going to be a GM. I want to think like a GM. Playing fantasy sports, you know, we think view players as assets, all the different, the way sports are covered now. Um, there's a whole different media, blogs and things like that who are covering sports differently and more analytically. Um people growing up reading that so i do think there's a and it's often younger fan faction of fan bases that think no no i don't want to just like the idea of being a fan that's all consuming that's not just watching a game at night that is the idea of following a team all day and trying to see is this move smart is this move not and i think that was part of the war so you have that that's outside the nba inside the nba it's the idea of tanking versus not taking analytics versus not um basketball is funny i think sam hinkie sort of represented a boogeyman to people in a way that never meant to or probably wasn't right like he he is known as a quote-unquote analytics guy he scouted a ton he believed in scouting you hear talk of and i have stuff in the book about that their pre-draft meetings and things and like they went in depth on players in a way lots of quote-unquote old school gms were not it was just that he had this and he called stink on him right the idea that he cared about numbers and nothing else yeah it's interesting i heard an interview with with a guy on the tim ferris's podcast a guy i forget his name but he was he's like the top silicon valley like investor, but he's always looking for the startup, the, the company that's like not that, that's no one's discovered yet. That's on the that, that is on the horizon of possibility in the market and technology and things. And he, he said, basically, I'm the opposite of Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett uh, bets that people are going to be they they've eaten Heinz ketchup, you know, they've used Heinz ketchup for a hundred years, and they're going to use it for a hundred other years, and so. My thing is like, what's the thing that's going to replace it? The thing that's going to replace it. And so he says, when I win, Buffett loses. When Buffett wins, I lose, right? And that's kind of, it's almost like this. Yeah, this I, I was thinking about that conversation as I was re- reading through your book. I was like, this is Hinky's idea, right? Like, okay, if I'm, if I'm winning, everyone else is losing. It's this kind of approach. Like, I, I love that you, you talk about early on in the book where he says to somebody, I think it's when he's working in football or something, right? He and his buddy say, uh, it, it, there's this quote, like, um, we, we, we don't care that they've never done it this way, something like that, right? They're yeah, thinking, right. like, they, they're, they're smashing idols. They are eating sacred cows. Sacred cows make great hamburgers, right? They say. <laughs> and and that, that's kind of, it's interesting because he's an iconoclast, right? I mean, he's one of these guys that wants to, it's almost like he's looking for what people aren't doing. That's an interesting way to be in the world because so much, the gra- the gravitational pull in any endeavor is conventional wisdom, right? For sure, it's and it's very much you know he he's from Oklahoma. He lives in Silicon Valley now. He was very much of the Silicon Valley um, thinking and like that you know reading Silicon Valley type books and listening to those podcasts and things like that. That was a big part of his spare time, right? Hank, he was a believer in that, and you can see that in that in these kind of 
thoughts. The idea, I think it was, it was him and Daryl Morey, who was the, in the NBA, who scored the NBA version of Michael, of, excuse me, Michael Lewis wrote about Daryl Morey, positioned him as sort of the NBA version of Billy Bean of Moneyball. Um, the idea being that, and the idea what you're saying, that we don't care. The asking, saying the reason we're doing something is because it's how it's always been done was not an acceptable answer to them. They were okay if through data and analysis and you know critical thinking you came to the same conclusions. That was that was fine, but there had to be actual thinking behind it. It couldn't just be oh we're doing this because we've always done this. It's interesting. I, I heard Malcolm Gladwell one of his podcasts saying like there's so many things in like sports. Like one of the analogies he uses like that that math the analytics people have found that if 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 NFL teams would go for it more and not push, yeah. that they would score, the average team would score like 20% more or something, right? And, and they've gamed this out pretty well, and yet no one will do it, right? Like, why will no one do it? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a uh, fear of losing jobs. I don't know. That's kind of the short answer, right? Um, and what's, so what's funny is, so Hinky, you know, Hink, to answer your question, I never thought of it like this, but Hinky is sort of a cautionary tale about the person who does do it, right? And he ends up being ousted within three years. Right. So, and by it, I don't just mean tanking. I mean being zero sum in his thinking in all endeavors. So, the idea of one of his big things was I want to kill every agent in every negotiation. It doesn't matter if it's for number one pick or the, you know, undrafted free agent. Um, opposing GMs, I want to kill them in every trade. Not realizing that sports is kind of a small world. And that's one of the interesting things about sports is that it, you know, Business principles apply to a point, right? Typical business principles apply to a point in sports. It is different. There is no other business like it. The idea of how small a world it is, um, how you're dealing with the same people over and over and over, how you have 30 competitors, but they're also your partners, right? Your team, the other teams. It's a really strange thing. I think that's one of the reasons we see um, so many really smart people who made lots of money in other fields come in and just seem to have no idea and fail mightily. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think of like Donald Trump, and I've heard some people say that one of the things that Trump, you know, his style, like, and this is kind of unique to New York real estate, right? Like, if you if if you don't get this development project, somebody else does, right? So there's right. not there's not there's very little. It's kind of a zero sum game, right? And so I've heard people say Trump's negotiation style. He just he's the same way. He did, he wants to got the other person. He doesn't want to incentivize negotiate. He wants to. And so it's one of those things where, like, where you think about certain business models, and does that help you in politics? Because, especially in a in a system like ours, which's built on balance of power and separation of powers, and 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 and, and these different branches having to work together, I feel like there's an analogy for what you're saying. It's like they're your partners and your competitors, and it seems like Kinky had this has this kind of like Trump New York real estate mindset where it's either or. Like if I if you get something, I lost it. And uh, the other politics, the uh, political comparison is that the idea of that and your idea also is you have to keep your job, right? And that's a big part of it. And so like, so, and again, someone else brought this up to me and they compared it to Bernie Sanders in a way that you can have be an idealist and have all these ideas, um, but you can't enact them if you don't get elected, right? If you don't get your job. And Hinky had all these ideas, but he forgot and he dropped the ball a little bit and part of the job is to keep the job. And you know, handle the political aspects of the job. Owners, opposing owners, opposing GMs, business partners, league executives, things like that. Um, league office. Um, you can't see your vision, your process through, or you can't. It won't be seen through if you're not in position. And he kind of dropped the ball on some of that stuff. Yeah, I think the other political analogy too is interesting. Like, not to get all, all political uh, as we're talking about sports and the process here, but I think 
you know, when I watch debates, I, I, it's people act like they're running for king or like this. Well, I'm going to enact. I'm going to give everybody free tuition, and I'm going to give everybody this, and I'm going to. And I'm thinking, well, there's going to be 40 people in the opposition party, 41 people in the Senate, yeah. so there's a filibuster rule. So you're not going to. So like, this is one of those things. It's it's so much the art of the possible, right? Where like, where you have to kind of, you know, it doesn't matter what your policy ideas are. The other party is going to have a controlling interest in the Senate. And so they're going to be able to block a lot of your stuff, right? So it's, you know, I, I was pleasantly surprised a few times in this, de- in this last debate, in the Democratic debates, some of the moderators like Chuck Todd actually said this, but how will you get this by Mitch McConnell? But I thought, why don't we all, why aren't we always asking that? Because again, that's the sort of rules of the road, right? Like it doesn't matter what your policy ideas are. You, you got to get the job like you're saying, but keep the job. Mm-hmm. And this is the challenge, right? Like how do you, how do you have the iconoclastic vision and yet stay in the system where this is interesting because you're kind of uh, this, this, like you're saying the systems like the NBA, the NFL, the, the, the competitors are partners, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're competitors and yet you kind of make the rules together, right? And you negotiate interests together as a league, right? When right. you think about taxation and stuff like that. And so maybe is that one of Hinky's like Achilles heel that, that it's hard yeah. for him to see himself in the context of we're, we're not just an us, them. There is a we in some of this. He thought the work in the end would speak for itself, but not just like in the work meeting, just winning. But like, you know, it was opposing owner. I don't remember if he said it on the record or not. But so an opposing owner said to me, you know, um, it's really simple. Fans don't like coming out to see bad teams play. Right. And that's a great example. Right. So the bottom line, like if you have one really bad team, you are and the NBA. It's a split revenue. Right. That's all sports. Revenue is basically pooled and split for the most part areas but so if you stink you are dragging down the entire bottom line right and it's a really simple example but a perfect example that encapsulates the whole thing and yeah hinky did not he wasn't concerned with that um right or not and he i think he thought ownership his owners were not concerned with that either um they ended up being more concerned with it than he realized and that contributed to that yeah it's interesting there's a book by uh, the philosopher of science thomas kuhn called the structure is the structure of scientific revolutions i think it's and he basically argues that what happens in science is there's a paradigm, right? Like that reigns, like Newtonian physics or something, right? And then someone comes along and questions the paradigm, right? But they have to kind of show the revolution doesn't happen until they show the weaknesses of the old paradigm. And enough people buy Like you can't get logically. You have to take a leap of faith to get from Newton to Einstein. Once you get to Einstein, Einstein can explain everything Newton could explain in his paradigm and more. And that's why the relativistic model becomes popular. But the challenge is you have to get enough people to take the leap of faith to go over and look at things with Einstein's lenses, right? And, and until you do that, the old paradigm just reigns. Even if you can explain more uh-huh. as Einstein than, than the old paradigm can, people are still in the old paradigm until there's, until there's the, a revolution. And that seems like the, the thing here – like. Even though Hinky kind of builds, you know, a process, or even the Moneyball kind of process, it, it's, it's like it, scientific revolutions. Until you get enough people to ditch the old paradigm, you are just kind of out in the wilderness. Sure, exactly. Yeah, hundred percent. That's, uh, you know, I mean, it's and that's why I think we often see the first guy through is doesn't fully. He opens the door, but he doesn't make it himself, right? And I think we often see that in in all ty- in all types of institutions and systems. Yeah. So, the, what, so how, what, I'm wondering, like, how a book like this has shaped the way you look uh, and that you look at different things in the world. Like how has stuff shaped your own perspective 
uh, on the world, like in, 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 in sports writing and business and just your everyday. And, and as, as you look at, edu- you know, educational or other institutions, I'm wondering, has this kind of, has, has the commitment to the process and it's in idiosyncrasies and things shaped the way you view the world now in other ways? Um, that's a good question. Okay. So if you, to answer, not the second part, the first part, like one thing I learned is just in the book and it affects my daily work, but I think in life, just realizing how little we know about things that happen, you know, so quote unquote public things, but or public um, entities and how much we actually, how little we actually know that happens behind the scenes that influences or creates the outcomes we then see in public. Um, that was really illuminating for me, the idea of all the behind the scenes of here, like infighting and things like that and palace intrigue that kind of led to Hinky's ousting and decisions and what made it so hard and what makes it then so hard, you know, on the outside, it's easy, it's easy to say, why doesn't everybody do this, right? Obviously, Shatank or obviously um, the old school way of doing X is incorrect. Why doesn't everyone see that and do Y? And this was kind of illuminating and seeing, no, it's, you know, breaking down systems is really difficult and here are the specific reasons and examples. So there's that. Um, yeah, listen, Hinky, <laughs> I also think, you know, he, he is both... Um, there's something to look up to about him, that the idea of he's stuck to principled, right? And he, he was very principled and stuck to his guns. But there's also the idea of, um, you know, compromise is okay every now and then. And I think we can all learn that no matter if we always think we're right, right? No matter what it is, um, it probably, to get things done, you probably do have to do some meeting, um, another stupid political you know, analogy across the aisle. And I don't mean in a gross way, but just some meeting of somebody uh, whether it's marriage, whether it's anything, right? Just the idea of that. And I think that's a good lesson. You tell a story at the end of the book. You met Hanky <laughs> kind of by chance. Yeah. Somebody, he were t- sitting with another NBA player guy you knew, and he said, he's over there. And he told you to get a vasectomy, right? right. So he, his friend did. It was right. His friend, not him. His friend. So we were okay, talking. And, uh, yeah, we were talking. I was at a bar table, and he was, you know, Hanky's nice. He was always very polite to me. But again, one of these conversations where it was clear that, um, he was much less interested in it than I was. So I did, you know, one of my go-to moves in this is I have two little kids. You know, if I know your father as a, as a reporter, that's a great move. Like, that'll connect us. You know, I just bring up like, oh, my kids are at home. I'm happy to be on the road now. And we talk about that. And his friend turns to me and says, oh, how many kids do you have? And I say two. And he goes, I have three. You should get a vasectomy. <laughs> I was like, ah, ha, ha. I start laughing. And he goes, I'm not kidding. I was like, okay. Person I just met, that's nice. Um, dude, that was pretty funny. That was a, uh, that was a good story. Yeah. <laughs> You know, as you're ta- as we're talking, I, I, I'm thinking I can imagine why the Sixers don't want to work with you on it because yeah. again the tensions of Hinky gone. But Hinky was so, and you tell stories where like Hinky, you'd reach out to a friend of his and he'd agree to an old friend and he agreed to talk to you. Then the next day you text him and he he said no I can't do it, and that that fascinates me because you know, in some sense like this book is is somewhat vindicating of Hinky. I mean, you're, you're objective and critical, but you, but I mean, it's pretty, I think Hinky comes out as an interesting protagonist like character. I mean, he's an interesting guy and and he's, he, you paint an interesting and sympathetic portrait of him. I, I, it, it, it blows my mind that he wouldn't want to help shape that story that you were telling. Yeah, I agree. There are very few people. I think people have told me, read the book, like very few characters from the book or, and I say characters in quotes, you know, to use, Term, but who people I've I've heard very little people saying, Oh, you know what? Now I don't like that guy at all. You know, most people people find it the opposite. Um so I'm with you. I mean Hinky's very on brand. He doesn't talk to media often or really ever. He's barely done it. Um why? Again, I don't know. I mean he said to me I'm not interested in shipping my quote unquote legacy. In my experience, people who talk about their legacy 
even if they say I'm not interested in shaping it. They're interested like, in their legacy. <laughs> yeah, people don't use the word legacy unless they've thought about legacy, right? I've never told I've never told somebody about my legacy that like I have that phrase has never come out of my mouth. But I don't know. It's very it was on brand for him just not not talk. And maybe that's part of the that is part of the legacy, right? <laughs> What's he doing now? He is li- actually just uh, Axios has had a story. He's living the Silicon Valley life, right? And out there, he just um, raised what was like fifty million dollars in venture capital money. Um, He's, uh, yeah, he's, I say, the Silicon Valley investment life, teaching at Stanford a little bit, doing his, uh, doing his own thing out there. And I do not expect to see him in the NBA again. What, what, what's he raising money? What kind of venture capital? What kind of industry? Yeah, you know what? I don't remember now because this story literally just came out like, I'm saying, two weeks ago, right? It wasn't even like that one. Um, so what's that money? What's he investing in? I don't even remember. Um, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, the name it was eighty-seven. The name of it is like a reference to Robert Carroll. The only thing, the only quote think he's given on the record, pretty much ever. He did one long interview with something with Sports Illustrated, and otherwise he just tells people that Robert Carroll is his favorite writer. For people who don't know, Robert Carroll is the one who takes thirty years to write one book, right? So Hinky is not very, um, he's not coy, right? Him telling everyone that Robert Carroll is my favorite writer. I mean, we're talking about trusting the process and staying principled and staying the one thing. Like, there's there are no better example than that. Um, and I think the venture capital firm, I forget how, there's some, the name is some reference to Robert Carroll or Robert Carroll book or LBJ or something. Yeah, you've written a great book, Tanking to the Top, and I, I appreciate you writing it. And I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me about it. Thanks for having me on and the interest. I uh, appreciate this. It was fun. Yeah, I had a good time. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.